Welcome to the Creative Agency Account Manager podcast with me, Jenny Plant from Account Management Skills Training. I'm on a mission to help those in agency client service keep and grow those existing client relationships so your agency business can thrive. Hello and welcome to episode 88. Rob DeCosta joined me today from DeCosta Coaching. Rob is an agency growth consultant and we discuss a myriad of topics, including the process for hiring the right account manager at your agency, examples of how to set client expectations and boundaries, why having a written scope of work is key to successful project delivery, and Rob's thoughts in general on the agency landscape, and the future of agencies. During our chat, one theme keeps emerging, which is ensuring you have the right systems and processes in place in your agency, which is kind of understandable given he wrote the book called The Self-Running Agency, which is, by the way, free to download on his website. And his website address is dacostacoaching.co.uk. So let's go over to the intro now. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Rob DeCosta. Rob started his PR agency in the early 90s, and after 11 years, he'd built it up to 25 people, at which point he sold it and started DeCosta Coaching in 2007. DeCosta Coaching helps agency owners build their business in a profitable, sustainable, and enjoyable way. He's the author of the book, The Self-Running Agency, and the host of the podcast, The Agency Accelerator. Big warm welcome, Rob. Thank you. And what a great introduction as well. Honestly, is there anything you'd like to add to your past before I dive into the questions? Not really. I guess the, I always say to people, that when I said build your agency in a profitable, sustainable and enjoyable way, that last bit is really important because I think a lot of people get very fixated on like the destination and they forget about enjoying the journey. And of course, you know, we may never quite get to the destination. So I'm giving people permission and helping them make sure that they enjoy the journey of their agency's growth is super important as well. So I just say that was something that I certainly didn't get right when I ran my agency. And I see a lot of the agencies I work with very fixated on this supposed light at the end of the tunnel and almost expecting to not have an enjoyable time because they're going to have to work really hard and they're not going to get paid very much because they're reinvesting in the agency. And I say, what would you do if you never got to that light at the end of the tunnel? Would it all still be worth it? So I think I'd just like to reinforce that enjoyable part and explain why I always say that's kind of a crucial part of growing an agency. Love that, because it can be pretty relentless, can't it, in agency world. So would you mind starting off by kind of explaining the biggest problems that you help agencies fix? Yeah, I think a lot of people come to me when they've hit a brick wall. So they're probably doing quite well, but they just can't get over that brick wall to the next stage of growth. And there's a number of reasons why that happens. And one of the first reasons is that they need to get out of their own way. So the things that have enabled their agency to be so successful up until that point are often become the things that become obstacles because everything's dependent on them. I just had a call before our podcast interview with a potential client and she was telling me how, you know, the brand is really her and all the clients want her on the account. And that is that typical problem. So I think like helping the agency owners get out of the way so that they can put the systems and processes in to start scaling their agency. 
I think often people have come to me when they are in a bit of a feast or famine cycle because they may well have relied on referrals and word of mouth to get all of their business and suddenly that isn't scalable and they recognize that they need to put some systems to get more business in that is in their control so more outbound marketing and sales to generate inbound inquiries I think often people come to me because they are really busy, but they're not profitable enough. So they don't want to be busy fools working really hard, but actually not making very much money. And so we end up looking at, you know, how they bill, their pricing. We look at the account management side of things to make sure that they are kind of not over-servicing their accounts. And then I think the other reason people come to me is because they want to scale their agency, but they don't really know how to. So we need to work on putting a plan and a roadmap together that includes building a team and then helping them become good delegators. Because let's face it, most agency owners are control freaks. We all are. That's why we started our business. One of the reasons we start our own business is that we want control. And yet now I'm saying, well, actually you need to relinquish some of that control because you've got to start delegating to your team. And if you don't delegate to your team, then you're going to have just more and more and more stress on your shoulders. And then you're going to get burnt out and you know you'll look back and think that wasn't worth it so I feel like those are the kind of key reasons that people would come to me and those are typical starting points of what they tell me where their agency is at. Mm, That's really interesting because you can't see your own business from the inside can you and having that coaching that external perspective is really helpful just out of interest when you were building your PR agency did you have any external counsel no no. and I tell you if I could go back and give my younger self a bit of advice that would be it but you know I started my agency in the early 90s and sold up in the early 2000s and coaching and mentoring just wasn't a well-known thing at all in fact even in 2007 when I started my coaching business, I would have to explain to people what coaching was. I'd have to explain to them that an agency doesn't just get a coach when they're not performing well. They get a coach when they are performing really well, just like a sports person. I had to make that analogy. Today, I think it's better understood, but back then, not at all. And so I only saw my way out when I was running my agency selling. But actually, if I had had a coach and someone to be in my corner, to be an ally, a shoulder to cry, an advisor, a mentor, a coach, all the things that I believe I provide to my clients, I'm sure I would have made some different decisions. So no, I didn't, is the long answer to a short question. And I would justify that by saying back then, coaching just wasn't very well known. During those 11 years, Rob, what do you believe that the coach could have made the biggest difference? Like, I know it might be a bit of an unfair question, but during those 11 years, obviously you kind of found your own way, but what in hindsight was one of the biggest mistakes that potentially you could have really appreciated an external perspective on it? I think having a plan and a roadmap, we kind of had a plan and we were good at business development, but we let too many external factors dictate our uh, trajectory. And I think, so having a plan That would be the one thing I think a coach would have said. And the second thing he or she would have said was put a senior team in place, have a really strong number two and get work off your plate so that you can then focus solely on running the agency. And also if you wanted work two days a week in the agency and go and pursue your other interests rather than selling up. I think the big thing a coach would have said to me was at the point where I decided I didn't want to do this anymore they would have helped me realize there were more options than just selling. Not that I regret selling, but that was the only option I saw. And I think a coach would have helped me realize that there were other options, like, I say, putting a really strong second-in-command in place 
building a really strong leadership team, delegating all of that day-to-day client management stuff to them, freeing me up to have a bit more flexibility and freedom, which at the end of the day, you know, I always say there's three reasons why we start our own business. We want control, we want flexibility and freedom. And we very quickly give all three of those up if we're not careful. So, you know, that, that's what I think a coach would have done for me. And I just want to say in favour of coaching and not that I'm trying to sell myself, but, you know, I'm old and grey and I still have a coach. I'm still part of a coaching programme because I just really enjoy learning. I enjoy being inspired by other people. And so it doesn't matter where you are in your journey. We should get some outside support in one way or another. 100% agree with you. I do too. And I find it just phenomenally helpful. So we talked about client management and one of the biggest mistakes is, you know, that the owner starts the business and they become central to their clients. The clients all want to talk to them. So can you talk to me a bit about what are the kind of common themes that you come across when agency owners are managing clients and some other maybe mistakes that they make around management of clients? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to owners, I think the biggest issue is they know what they're doing and it's in their head and they expect other people to telepathically understand what they do. And for an owner to start documenting that is a bit of an anathema because, you know, by definition, usually entrepreneurial owners are not very detailed people. So writing step-by-step guidance of how to manage an account is probably very difficult. So I think they can fail quite quickly when they hire account managers or account directors and don't kind of spend time. I mean, one of my favorite expressions is slowing down to speed up. And that's certainly what you'd have to do in that case is to slow down and actually invest time in training your account manager to not only be a great account manager, but also to do it the way that you want so that you can then confidently say to the customer, look, I know you want me on the account, but actually it doesn't really matter who's on it because you're going to get exactly the same experience, exactly the same communication, exactly the same quality, whether it's me or whether it's Jane or Fred. So I think that's the first thing. And I think it all starts, like when you were asked what are some of the common mistakes, I think it all starts because some agencies don't have a clear enough scope of work that is understood well between the client and the agency. And that means that the client feels like they can just keep asking you to do things, say, hey, can you just, and the account manager wants to delight the client and says, yes, of course I can. And before we know it, we've got massive scope creep. We look at our bottom line and we realize that we're not anywhere near as profitable because we are doing so much more than the client's paid for. And of course, the more we say yes, the more the client is going to expect us to say yes. And so suddenly the scope gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So I think it starts by having really good clarity around the scope of work. And then it also means putting good boundaries in place with your clients so that, you know, we need to understand internally, like what are our service level agreements? So, you know, if we say to a client, we aim to respond to you within four hours or six hours or two hours, are we making sure that we stick with that? Or are we running this mindset of going, oh, we might as well just respond to them now? Because again, we're setting this precedent of immediate responses. And then when we can't maintain that immediate response rate, now the client is disappointed, even though the actual service level says within a six hour response time. So communication and all that I just said is super important. We need to make sure that not only have we got a good scope of work, but the client also understands that as well as our internal account team. And I think also, if you take a step back from the scope of work, the process that we go through when we actually prospect and win our clients 
determines the relationship we're going to have with the client. Because if we're sowing the seeds early on in those prospect conversations of a real partnership, respectful relationship, then that's how the client's going to treat us. But if we're not doing that in our prospecting phase and we're just being seen as a supplier that looks a little bit better than the current supplier we've got, so we'll just put, you know, switch them out, then we're going to end up with this very imbalanced kind of customer-supplier relationship where the customer beats up the supplier and the supplier says yes because their only point of differentiation is being cheaper or offering ridiculous levels of service. So we just have to get it right from the very beginning stages of those very first conversations we have in the prospecting phase to how we write a scope of work when we're writing a proposal and then how we onboard clients and how we set our stall out of this is how we're going to work together. And I think we have to make sure that all of the account team understand that and that they're involved in certainly the onboarding process as much as possible so that they are clear about how it's going to work. And I think the other mistake I see, and I've seen this from both sides of the table, is where the owner of the agency wins the business and then they try at a later stage to pass it off to an account manager that the prospect has never heard of. And of course, the clients are already feeling disappointed because they wanted the owner on the account. So years ago, I had a client that was recruiting a new agency. So they asked me to sit in the pitches and I sat in the pitches, which was kind of an interesting but kind of boring experience. And one agency came in and it was very sexist. So I apologize in advance, but there was the owner of the agency that was a was a man in his 40s. And then there was a bunch of young women in their 20s that came in the room with him. They didn't say a word. They tried to get a word in, but he was dominating everything. And of course, he wasn't going to be the person that was working on the account. So there was just absolutely no way that that agency was going to win the business. So those are some of the mistakes. And then I think the other thing is when you're hiring an accounts team for the first time, you want to hire the most experienced people that you can afford. But often what happens is you take on very junior staff in that account management role and you don't invest in enough training or mentoring with those people. And then you get frustrated when they don't do a good job or your clients are unhappy because they're not getting the service level or the understanding that they had when you, the owner, was working on the account. So that's, again, a long answer to a short question. So many good, really valid points there. I wanted to dive into all of them. But just on the last point you made about hiring, I think this is a common problem among agency owners like how do I get this right do you have any kind of go-to tips or pieces of advice for getting the right person particularly in account management yeah I mean listen this is really obvious but it isn't that obvious start by writing a really clear roles and responsibilities for the role that you're hiring so a roles and responsibilities isn't a job description it might be part of a job description but a roles and responsibilities simply says these are the roles that I want this person to take. And this is the level of responsibility for each of those roles that they're going to have. And then this is how I'm going to measure their success. Because that gives you a benchmark of what you're looking for then. And then you want to make sure you're digging into each of those roles in the interview process to find out what their experience is. And I think the other thing is you need to think about some of the soft skills that they need to have. Like One thing that will often happen is that you might hire someone from an in-house role. So they have probably really good technical skills around whatever your agency does. So if you're a PR agency, they might have really good PR editorial skills, but they probably don't have very good skills around multitasking and managing multiple clients because they've only predominantly had one client to manage before. And then they can fail spectacularly because they just can't cope with managing 
four or five clients in a day that they might have to deal with. So I think getting that right and not being afraid to ask those questions and ask them for real examples of how they coped with different scenarios. So you can think of all the things that happen on a day-to-day basis in your agency and turn them into questions that you'd, you know, really do your due diligence in the interview process. And then, like I say, you know, what people need to remember is that when you're hiring someone and you found a really great person, that that's not the end of the problem. That's the start of the journey. So then you've got to really invest in those people to make sure they're successful. So invest in their onboarding, which means a lot more handholding and training than you will do once they've got their feet under the table. Have a clear probation period, say six months, and don't extend it if things aren't working out, but know exactly the metrics that you're going to measure them against in those six months to decide if they're a good fit or not. And obviously give very good regular feedback to those people both positive and negative when necessary but make sure that you are being a supportive manager to help them rectify anything they're not quite getting right so i don't know that answers all your questions very, very thoroughly you're essentially setting someone up for success but i loved your first point you know just be really clear about what the expectation is that you want this person to do because too often i get account managers talking to me and the expectation wasn't set from the beginning so like you said, Robert, an example would be someone who's come from an agency environment and perhaps they were working on one big account within that agency and all of a sudden they've got to manage multiple accounts and they might not have that proficiency or they might not have the experience. So loads of different really good points there. I like the onboarding point as well and something just very tactical. A lot of people that are doing onboarding processes now are using AI and there's a tool called Synthesia. Have you heard of it? Dot AI. And basically you input the text of your onboarding process and it will create a video. There's a talking head, which means you can make updates as you go. It's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, I think it's just so true. You, You have to set people up for success and I think often when agency owners are running at 100 miles an hour they'll feel like that's that fire put out and let them go on with it and we don't want to take a sink or swim approach to this because it's too costly how much does it cost to hire the wrong person to have the wrong person be disruptive to introduce that wrong person to a client how much does it cost you it costs you an awful lot so let's you know be thorough in the recruitment process and also be thorough in you know, that period of the first six months where you're trying to get their feet under the table and you're feeling confident that they can do the job and they understand what's expected. And, you know, that then you're going to give yourself the best chance of success. Do you advocate for a kind of always be hiring kind of approach, like always having an eye on who's around and yes. kind of filling that bench in advance? Do you think I, that's... Yeah, I, I do actually. And since I started this business in 2007, I think that's almost always been the case because in 2007, we were midway in a financial crisis and everyone was staying in their jobs. So it was hard to recruit. Then the economy got good and it's hard to recruit when the economy is good because there's lots of jobs out there. And I think at the moment it's hard to recruit still. So I think it is always a good idea to be keeping an ear out there and looking for good people. And sometimes you even have to take a punt when you find a good person, but you're not actually in a position to hire them yet or you haven't got to that point and sometimes you have to take that risk to say well actually i'm gonna hire them because that will free up my time to get more business to fill their capacity so i think yes you should certainly have an ear to the ground all the time 
Because let's face it, if I decided today I want to hire an account manager or an account director for my agency, it's probably going to take me three to six months to find that person. And I don't want to get to the point where I desperately need someone today if it's going to take three to six months, because then we end up fulfilling that capacity with things like freelancers and so on, which is fine, but it can cost us an awful lot more money. And it isn't really creating a lot of scalability because they come and go and they have their own agendas. So I'm not saying using freelancers is a bad idea. It's a good way of plugging a gap, but it's also going to cost you more money. Really good point. And if you don't get freelancers, then you're potentially putting extra workload on your existing staff and then they get stressed out and demotivated. So it's like a knock-on effect. Really good point. Do you have any view on the kind of the optimal agency structure, particularly when you want to kind of foster an environment of a high-performing team that delivers excellent client service? Do you have any recommendations for agency owners? Yeah, this is a really good question that doesn't have one clear answer, I think. And I, I thought about this and I thought, well, actually, I believe it depends on the type of agency. So if you've got like a PR agency, a social media agency, a content agency, you may well have the AM model where the AM is being a PM as well. But then when you look at the graphic design, web design, digital app kind of agency, that lends itself, I think, much more to the account managers being the people that are kind of running the account and bringing new work in and then the PM model of the people are actually delivering the work. So the subject matter expertise sits with the PM, not with the AM. So I think it depends. In my background of PR, it was always the account managers were the subject matter experts and the people that were delivering the work and the account directors were the people that would have responsibility for new business. So I really think it depends. I like the pod structure because I think that creates a very scalable system. In other words, you might have an account director, two account managers, two account execs as a team that work on a bunch of accounts together, and then another pod looking the same as that, taking on another team. And then it becomes quite easy to to plug in the next team. Now, the one word of caution about that approach is to make sure that we have really good systems and processes in place that everyone is following. So every single pod or team is doing things exactly the same way. I worked for a client before that crazily didn't have that in place and they had three or four pods and they were all doing things their own way which is when i say out loud sounds so stupid but trust me it is very 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 difficult to untangle that it's much better to get it right from the beginning so create your best practice with one team document the key look at the client journey and document the key processes of managing the client and then when you grow your second team you can just have them follow those same systems and processes and now we're creating true scalability in our agency i think it's really worth kind of noting what you've just said because i too work with a lot of independent agencies i've worked for multiple independent agencies but i've also worked for the havases the publicists the wpps and the network agencies i have to say process is everything. And God forbid, if you don't follow that process, you are hauled over the coals. But what that creates is a real scalable model. And that's why these big giant networks can exist because it's drummed into you from the moment you step through. And if you're running your own agency and you aspire to sell it one day, what is the value in a service-based business? Well, it's a number of things. It's your order book, it's your clients, it's your staff. But one of the key things that's going to add value to your business is scalability. And what's going to make you scalable is 
consistent systems and processes. So if I was a buyer and I was looking at two agencies that on the outside looked the same because they both turned over the same revenue, they both had similar profit numbers with similar people, but one of them had really well-documented systems and processes, and this agency is worth multiple times the other one because the acquirer will be able to look at agency B, the one with the systems and processes, and say, I can see how I can scale this business. Whereas they look at agency A and they'd say, we're going to have to reverse engineer a lot of what they do and invest a lot of time getting some consistency in that business before we can scale it. So even though from the outside, these two agencies look the same, one is worth an awful lot more than the other. So that is another reason why really well-documented systems and processes are so important. I agree with you. And also, you know, it makes onboarding so much easier for new staff, doesn't it? It sets the expectation for what clients are going to receive and what they're not. So they're more likely to refer their friends and other areas of their business because they know that they're going to have a kind of predictable service. So yeah, really, really good point. Just carrying on with the theme of managing client relationships, do you have any kind of go-to best practice tips or techniques for managing client relationships? Yeah, I mean, the overriding one is good communications, I think. Know how your client prefers to communicate, communicate that way. Don't just do everything by email. Have both your formal and your informal communications laid out in your onboarding process so that the client knows they're going to get a monthly meeting with you and in that monthly meeting the context is to you know review work and set out the stall for the next month know that once every six months you're going to do a big strategy planning session with them get all of your team involved in those meetings and then of course you're going to have your informal communications as well so I think that's really important and as I said earlier make sure you've got a really well written scope of work so that your team understands what we're doing that means that you're empowering your team so even little Jimmy account exec is able to say, look, the client's asking us to do this, but I know it's not included, so how should I handle that? Because we live in a world where, you know, people believe that if I don't jump when the client says jump, then we will lose the client. And some agencies would work like that, so that's how the account teams believe they have to operate. And then they have high turnover of staff, they have difficult client relationships, they have unprofitable client relationships, and they have a very stressed agency. So get that scope of work really clear. Make sure all the account team understand it. Make sure the client understands it. Train your team members so that they know there's five answers to the question of, can you just do this? So that moment where the client says, could you just do this? And in their mind, it's 20 minutes work. But the reality is it's half a day's work. And we say yes, because we want to delight the client, know that there's five answers to that. And the answers are, yes, we can do that. Yes, we can do that, but not until this date in the future. Yes, we can do that, but we need to swap something else out that we'd agreed in the scope of work for this month. Yes, we can do that, and it will cost you this much more money. Or no, we can't do that. So those are the five responses. And we need to train our whole account team to understand that, but they won't be able to implement that unless they understand the scope of work. And so I think that's really important. I teach a thing called standards and extras, and it's not something that I invented, but it is really, really powerful. So I would teach account teams this. So what's a standard service and what's an extra? And this isn't about what we do for our clients. It's about how the client perceives what we do. So let me give you a really good example of that. For the listeners, let me ask you, do you send out Christmas cards to your clients? And if I said that, a lot of people will put their hand up and say, yes, we do. And I'll say, is that a standard or an extra? And they'll say, oh, it's an extra. And I'd say, well, if it's an extra, 
then if I stop doing it, the client won't mind that we're not doing it anymore. But if I send you a Christmas card every year and it's the best Christmas card you always receive because it's got flashing lights on it, you always remember it. And then next year I don't send you that card. Well, you're going to be thinking, well, what have I done wrong? So people perceive as that example that sending a Christmas card is an extra, but in reality, it's not seen as an extra because if I don't send it, I'm going to be disappointing the client. So that's a standard service because at the end of the day, if I don't do a standard service, well, of course, they're going to be disappointed. That's quite hard to explain it without drawing a diagram, but hopefully everyone will understand that. So we need to make sure that the team understand that our standard service and extra service isn't necessarily what we do, it's how the client perceives what we do. So if you want to make Christmas cards known as an extra, not a standard, you'd almost have to say that we don't send these every year, but we want to send you this card this year because we love you and we want to say thank you. Then I'm positioning it as an extra. Now, Christmas card is a really silly example to use because, of course, you wouldn't do that. But you may choose with a service when the client asks you to do something rather than just saying, yes, you may say to them, well, look, on this occasion, we will do it, but it's outside of the scope of work, but we want to help you. We'd normally charge you this much money for it. But in this case, we're going to do it for free. So you need to make sure that your accounts team are empowered to have those kinds of conversations and not just say, yeah. So I think that's some of the tips I would share about building a strong relationship with clients. I love that. I think that's such a good example. And it's like going to a coffee shop, isn't it? Where systematically every coffee you receive has a little biscuit. This actually happened to me recently. And so you get used to having that biscuit because that's part of the package. But then one day you don't get the biscuit and you feel a bit robbed and you think you're missing out on something. So I think that analogy is brilliant. Can I I give you really quickly a real business example of this? Please. Because years ago I was working with a client and this happened to them. And this was back in, I don't know, probably the early days of my business. So back in like, say, 2008, 2009, they were developing a website for a shop And so it was an e-commerce website, a transactional website. And in those days, there weren't a lot of ready-made plugins. So it was quite a technical build. So they quoted, I don't know what it was, say 30,000, 40,000 pounds to the client. And then they quoted an extra thousand pounds to write a user manual showing the shop how to upload products and how to change prices and all the rest of it. And the client said, we want to go ahead, but we're not going to pay the thousand pounds for the user manual. So they said, fine, so we won't make a user manual. Fast forward six or seven months, they're getting to the end of the build and they thought, well, it's quite complicated. So we need to show the client how to upload it. So we'll just give them for free a sort of a down and dirty three page, you know, guide on how to upload it. So they send it all off to the client. The client's happy with the website, but the shop owner phones them up and says, I'm really unhappy with the user guide that you've sent over. It's not very detailed and it's not very clear for everyone how to use it. And they're thinking, hang on a second, you didn't want to pay six, seven months ago. You said no. So we're doing this as a favor, as an extra. But the client forgot that and they saw it as a standard. And therefore, it wasn't very good. So the client was disappointed. So then the agency said to me, well, how would we have done that in the right way? Well, first of all, you'd have reminded them that they didn't want to buy the £1,000 one, but we're doing this for you anyway. Second of all, you could have put a line on the invoice with a price on it and then a discount of 100% to show that they were getting it for free. So there are a number of ways of positioning that as an extra so the client sees it that way. And and that was a really good business example of where an agency got it wrong. And when they were trying to go the extra mile and help, it actually made things worse for them. Brilliant example. And it is about how you manage that situation, isn't it, Rob? So really good tips. I think the point that you've made a couple of times is this kind of written scope of work, making sure that the client understands it, that everybody in the agency understands it. And that really is the whole 
cornerstone of the success of that project. And I don't know what you think about this, Rob, but it's an observation that I've made. Often your scope of work is just in the same format. And what I mean by that, a lot of people are not detail oriented. Your clients, you know, they may be, you know, high on dominance in disk profile and therefore they want kind of the short version. So if you're providing a long scope of work, they're very unlikely to have read it to have understood it and to be following it. So it comes as a surprise when they ask for an extra that it's out of scope. So I think there could be a lot more work around bringing that scope of work to life in video format, in visual format, graphic format. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I think, you know, I said earlier, one thing you want to do with your clients is understand the best way to communicate with them because some people are visual, some people are readers, some people are watchers. And of course, their profile typically might mean that they're not detailed people. So sending the this is why I think agencies that send detailed monthly reports outlining every task they've done is just it, I think they're covering their backsides. They're trying to justify their existence rather than clients are never going to read it. So I think understanding your client's disk profile and therefore how best to communicate with them is a really smart thing to do. It's like taking it to the next level. I just think you've got to keep revisiting it. You know, we all know scope of works change. So, you know, I would say on a quarterly basis, when you're having those strategy planning sessions, what comes out of that is a scope of work for the next quarter. And you might highlight seven projects that we're working on so you can keep it very succinct. My feeling is that you need to provide the high level summary focusing on the the outcomes of what you're trying to do and then the detail that sits beneath it for you or other people in the client that might want that detail and then when things change, you revisit that and you agree the change with the client. You don't just blindly do it. So I think one thing we should recognize is that everyone digests information differently. And we need to not just think one size fits all because we're comfortable with that. And the second thing is that the world changes and the scope of work needs to change to reflect that. So revisiting it on a quarterly basis. And of course, by doing that, you also give yourself the opportunity to upsell. Because when you having those quarterly reviews and they're asking you to do these extra things, you can say, yeah, absolutely. We'll give you a price for that. And it becomes a very easy sell. So I think it's a very gentle way to get your account managers into that upselling and selling mode and not just, you know, on the treadmill of trying to keep their clients happy doing the same thing month after month and hoping that they will never kind of look in detail and say that this isn't working. Very much agree with you. I think the agencies I've been working with recently are American-based and they seem to have a lot more of a kind of cadence of raising change orders on projects. And I think this is about really keeping a handle on the scope, keeping it really detailed. What have you seen since 2007, Rob, when you started to help agencies? What do you feel has got harder for agencies and what perhaps has got easier? Well, I think it's got a lot easier to start an agency because at the end of the day, especially digital agencies, you don't need much of anything, really, a computer, Wi-Fi, a LinkedIn profile, and off you go. So I think it's got a lot easier to start an agency than it was back in the day for me. And I think it's probably always been quite hard to survive beyond the first year or two. But I think it's got harder to survive and grow because there's so much more competition. Like when I started my agency and we focused on the tech sector, there were only two or three players in that space then. And so it became easy for us to be seen as a competitor to the big boys quite quickly. I think now that isn't true at all. So I think there's a lot more competition and it's harder to survive and grow. And, you know, one piece of advice I'd give to anybody who was just starting that journey now 
is to find your space, find your niche, because the more you can be seen as an expert and not a generalist, the easier it's going to be to survive. So I think in a nutshell, it's easier to start an agency, it's harder to survive and grow. And you need to find a clear niche as quickly as possible because that will separate you from the competition. So not only will it be easier for you to find clients, but it will be easier for clients to find you. And of course, as the expert, you'll be able to charge higher fees. I think part of what's happened in the it's easier to get going is that we're competing more and more against the Upwork, Fiverr type people that are, you know, creating agencies. And that's a race to the bottom because it's who's the cheapest. So we never want to win business because we're the cheapest. So don't start out and think, oh, I'll be really cheap because it's just me and it's not expensive to run my business. Because as you grow, it becomes much harder to be anchored away from that low price point than it would be to get your price right at the beginning. So I can think that's how I've seen the agency world. Um, and of course, you know, since I ran my agency, the social media didn't exist back then. The internet didn't even exist at the beginning of my running the agency. So the world, if I reflect back how the world has changed and how it's about to change as well, you know, it's just very, very fast paced. So that's kind of what I think. I want to pick your brains on that in a moment, but just going back to niching, if someone's listening in and thinking, okay, I kind of know theoretically, you know, that makes sense for me to niche, but is resisting it for any reason or says to you, Rob, you know, I've got multiple clients in multiple sectors at the moment. We're doing kind of a range of services for them. What's the starting point for someone that's kind of thinking, yes, good idea to niche, but I don't really know where to begin. Yeah, I think the starting point is challenging mindset. So these stories that you tell yourself that, you know, if I niche, I will upset all those existing clients in all these different sectors. If I niche, I will limit my reach. And if I narrow the product offering down, I will lose business. Those are just stories you're telling yourself. And I would actually say that the opposite is true of every single one of those stories I just mentioned. The more specialist you are, the easier it becomes to find business. And as I said earlier, the higher fees you can charge. So I think that's the first thing. So I think one thing to know is that if you have a broad range of clients today and you're going to niche down, that doesn't mean you have to fire those clients or even that they will leave you because you're positioning yourself something slightly differently because your clients are not necessarily looking at your website or your LinkedIn profile every single day. So it's fairly safe to say that if you establish a new niche, you won't lose those existing clients. And I think then do some analysis. I mean, the simplest way of working out your niche is to look at your clients over the, if you've been around for a few years, look at your client base over the last few years and identify the ones that you were most successful for, the ones you enjoyed working with the most and the ones that you earned the most money in. If you take those three categories, look at the overlaps, so like a Venn diagram with the overlap, the middle of those three overlaps is going to be your niche. And for some people, it's really easy. Like for me, it was probably for you as well, Jenny, it was really easy to work out our niche because we had a background in the agency sector. But for other people, it's harder to work that out. And the other thing I'd say is that whatever niche you choose today doesn't mean you're committed to that niche forevermore because niching can ebb and flow over time. And so you just need to, I think, challenge your mindset. I do not believe, even if you look at huge brands, that appear to be generalists, they're not generalists. Because when you look at their sub-brands, I mean, think about, I don't know, Coca-Cola as an example. Why do they have Coke Zero and Diet Coke and all the rest of it? Well, they have them because they're targeting very specific niches. Coke Zero is aimed at males of a certain age, whereas Diet Coke is aimed at females, even though the product is probably exactly the same. So even big 
what would appear very generalist brands are not generalist. They have their sub niches. But for agencies, I would start with ideally one niche and broaden out over time. I wouldn't stay broad and try to niche down. It's quite ironic, isn't it? Because as marketing agencies, we're often giving our clients this advice, but we find it hard to take it ourselves. So I wouldn't be in business if everyone took their own advice. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. But you've probably got a multitude of different examples, but I've got an example of an agency, Copy House. She has grown exponentially in three years. Why? Because she focused on copywriting for the tech and fintech industries. She's out speaking at events around fintech and tech. She gets all of her clients together across those client sectors and takes them out. So they network together. There's all these kind of unusual benefits that transpire. And also it makes it easier to cross-sell, upsell. So I absolutely agree. And and at the end of the day, if you take Copyhouse as an example, if they were trying to be a generalist copywriting agency, well, they wouldn't be able to go and speak at those events because they wouldn't know what events to speak at. So when you have a clear niche, it becomes so much easier to identify your audience and where they hang out, in this case at conferences, and go and engage with them. Yeah, absolutely. So just final question, really. Can you talk a bit about any trends that you're seeing in the agency landscape and where you think that potential opportunities and challenges are for us in the future? Yeah, so I think carrying on from the previous point, there are a lot of digital agency startups and a lot of them lack differentiation. So I think that's one thing I see a lot of. I think technology is super important. The way the world has changed, you know, when I ran my agency, we did lots of things wrong. One of the things we did right was measuring time internally and we used an Excel spreadsheet, whereas nowadays there's so many great agency-oriented apps like Harvest and Toggle and Streamtime. So I think technology is really enabling us to run our agencies better. And of course, I can't not mention AI in this conversation because it is a massive, massive, massive game changer and it's going to impact the roles in agencies. It's going to enable agencies to be way more efficient. And any agency that's trying to fight against that at the moment, I mean, I've heard people say, oh, well, it will never replace copywriters and all the rest of it. Well, of course it won't. But what it will do is change the role of the copywriter and it will enable the copywriter to have far more capacity because they can work much faster to deliver good quality content. What it won't do is write all the copy for them we're always going to need great copywriters to ask the right questions and put the right copy into AI to produce the right copy out of it. So I think AI is a massive game changer. You mentioned a tool earlier that you've been using for, I think, onboarding. onboarding. There are so many tools. I'm, I use a tool now called Cast Magic that really helps me with my podcast because it does the transcription automatically and it comes up with some great titles for the podcast you know i was doing it, it just from an email address it'll write someone's biography if, they, if you have a guest on your podcast it creates linkedin posts and social media posts it, it's amazing and it saves me probably two hours a week because it can do in 15 minutes what i could do in two hours and of course you have to edit it. and then there are a million 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 versions of that for design and imagery and everything else so i think it's very very exciting and agencies need to embrace it, not fear it. So that I think that's really the big thing that's coming down the road. And it it appears to be running at such a pace at the moment. Well, of course, it isn't really because it's been around for a long time. We're just seeing the practical applications of AI emerging, which is why it seems to have come out of nowhere. So I think agencies have to embrace that. 
And I think we need to be more niche. I mean, I'm banging that drum, but I think because the sector is so competitive now, we need to be more niche. And I guess the other thing is that we need to get really good at engaging our employees and keeping our staff and retaining our staff and recognizing different demographics have different needs and not thinking that it's just about competitive pay well of course it is but it's also about all these other benefits that are really important to the kind of uh, millennials and the the gender i mean i'm no expert on all of that but i know that community and you know giving back and and all of that stuff is super important and training and development is super important as well as a competitive salary so i think we have to get smarter about that and i guess the other big trend that's been brought on because of the pandemic is the concept of remote working we know we all figured out that we could work from home and almost all of my clients haven't gone back to the pure five-day a week office so just working that out and how that can work is becoming super important and it's actually making recruitment easier because it means I can hire someone in a different part of the country or even in a different country and still communicate with them and still make them feel part of the team so those are some of the trends that I've seen over the last year and I think the biggest one is the AI which I think is a game changer and you need to be on the leading edge of exploring and using that not on the lag where you're waiting and seeing or even fighting it because you think it's bad and it's you know I mean if you think about it I don't know the Kindle came along and they said that was the end of the printed book and the calculator you know came along and that was the end of kids knowing how to do maths and the internet came along and that was the end of I don't know we've seen it all before we've seen the cycle (laughs) so many times and so all these scaremongers talking about AI well it's not going to do any of that stuff. AI is never going to take over the human race. It's just making our lives way, way easier. I think that's good advice. Embrace it. And funny enough, I saw a friend at the weekend who works in a very big popular agency and they've been banned using it. Can you believe it? Because there's this worry about legalities and I don't think the regulations have caught up yet. So we're at that precipice. Anyway, Rob, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing so many tips, so many ideas and insights. It's been really, really gripping. So who do you typically work with, Rob? And how can people contact you? Who would you like to hear from? Yeah, I typically work with agencies somewhere between one and 25 staff is my sweet spot. And they aspire to grow their agencies. And and like I said, they want an expert at their side, providing them advice and confidence and tools and techniques to grow. So that's my ideal target client. And in terms of reaching me, I mean, the best way is just to drop me an email at robert at the cost of coaching.co.uk or the, in the notes. Yeah, worry. thank you. Or my website, the cost of coaching.co.uk or reach out to me on LinkedIn, which is just Rob DaCosta. Those are kind of three key channels. And just to say on my website, there are lots of content around lots of the topics that we've spoken about today that people can grab for free and learn more about niching or any of the other things that we've talked about today. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rob. This has been brilliant. Great. No, it's lovely to join you today. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Rob and have come away with a few things that you can implement in your agency right now. And if you want to improve your account management skills and are curious about what training could do for you, you can find all the details of my training programs on my website, which is accountmanagementskills.com. And I'm going to leave you with Sam Dunn, 
Sam is an account manager for the animation studio Salamandra and she came on my account accelerator program and here she explains how she started doing things differently as a result of the training and the impact it's had on both her client relationships and the opportunities it has created for her agency. I look forward to seeing you on the next one. Just by changing a couple of things that um, I was talking to clients about, um, it's opened a few more doors for us. Um, so one client, for example, I was just sort of questioning um, more and sort of talking more about things that we were doing uh, that might be more of a value add for them. And it led to her introducing us to different departments within in their business, which has been really cool. We're just gonna try and implement it more as, as like an ongoing roadmap, looking at our biggest clients and the ones that um, we're keen to grow and just sort of target them specifically going forward. So our biggest client, we managed to um, get a few of them in a room and, and do sort of like an introduction to workshops. And we're talking about doing um, regular workshops going forward, which is a huge breakthrough um, with that client as well. I feel a lot more confident. It's It's been really interesting just to see um, like just by making small changes and talking to clients about different things, the, the different kinds of conversations that lead from that. Mm -hmm.